Real Men Feel with Andy Grant encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been told, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but all men can benefit from. If you would like a one-on-one conversation to help you get clear on what you want in life and what's in your way of getting there, visit theandygrant.com slash talk and book a no-obligation, no-cost appointment. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now let's get to it. Hello and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant. You know, I've heard from many men that they have been struggling with their role and their identity. It's just not as clear what being a man means these days, right? Now, my guest today is speaker, writer, entrepreneur, and community builder, Ramon Frey. And he is going to explore with us the possibility of a more fluid contextual identity. And I'm very excited for this conversation. Welcome to the show, Ramon. Thank you for having me on, Andy. It's great to be here. Cool. Now, when we first talked, you talked, you were stressing that you're in favor of this, this more fluid notion and that being a chameleon is really kind of being of service and that flexibility is really required today. Yeah. Because um, I think we, there's, there's this whole like fake it till you make it and oh, and, and sure. we're, you know, we're physically putting on masks and we've, you know, lived behind masks for a while. But so w- why is being a chameleon, why is that actually of integrity? Yeah, so, uh, so I think it's a great question. It is, a lo- there's a lot of muddy water there, I-, I think, especially in American culture, because we tend to think of integrity as being the same thing as consistency. Hmm. In other words, we're given um, a suggested role, like a prescribed role. You know, if you're a man, you're like this. And then we maybe customize a little bit. And then if we're in integrity, we show up the same way all the time, everywhere, no matter what. And that means that, uh, that we're a good man and that we have integrity. <clears throat> and I think this comes out of a, a bunch of different uh, sort of strains of thought, many of which most of us have sort of absorbed, even if we've never studied it or looked into it. You know, one of it is, de- one, one source is Descartes. One source, I was almost a scholar of religious studies, so I would have had to teach a bunch of different of the uh, different world religions. So some of it comes out of the Abrahamic face, um, that this sense of being consistent is being an in integrity and is being a good person. Um, and I think that their reality, especially with the pace of change and shifting contexts, is very different. And so I think it actually causes a lot of pain for a lot of people because the natural thing to do is to show up differently in each context, right? If you, if you and I showed up in our bathing suits with like floaties at a funeral, that would be inappropriate, right? And if we showed up at the beach dressed all in black for a funeral, that would be inappropriate. So I think it's actually really appropriate to have sort of North stars, clarity of your own ethics. And, and there's no right or wrong answer there. Um, you have clarity of your own ethics and you use those as guiding principles as you allow yourself to show up in different ways in different contexts. Hmm. Uh, You know, part of that could be business. I I once asked one of the most successful entrepreneurs I've ever known, a guy who likes his anonymity, so I won't say his name here. And uh, his batting average in business was a thousand. He had never failed. And, and many of the companies that he had started had actually gone all the way to IPO. They're publicly traded companies. 
And I said to him at one point, because I've started a lot of businesses with friends, I said, what's the most common mistake you see people making in business and in entrepreneurship, especially in the technology community here? And he said, they show up the same wherever they are. In other words, they don't have the self-awareness to, there are certain contexts where you're big and bold and assertive. There are certain contexts where you sit back and you listen and you're in touch with your emotions. Um, and, and he said that was a big part of his own success. So, so I think of it that way. I think of it in our relationships with our loved ones, with our romantic partners, with our friendships. If you, if you think you can fall back on a rule of thumb and always be the same at all times, it's going to cause a lot of unnecessary suffering. But if you really pay attention and you're flexible and adaptive, you're actually going to do a better job caring for the people around you and showing up in the appropriate way for that context. So that's, that's what I meant by that. Cool. Um, so so it's not, is it similar to emotional intelligence and reading social cues? Yeah. I mean, those are definitely, those are definitely both factors. Um, you know, there's uh, uh, also a concept of code switching where, you know, you're in a more formal environment, you behave one way, you're in a, no, a less formal environment, you behave another way. Um, and I think that it is absolutely possible to, again, yeah, like emotional intelligence and, and picking up on those social cues, it's possible to show up and adapt to rein it in. I have a big personality. You probably have a big personality as the host of a podcast. There's times, right, when that's what's, you know, best. You know, my, uh, my mom has uh, struggled with uh, cancer for quite a few years. Um, she's so tough, and I just have so much love and respect for her. But if I showed up for our conversations on sort of her feelings and what she's going through with these treatments, if I showed up with her in the same way that I show up when I'm hosting an event and I'm the MC on stage, that wouldn't work. Um, so, yeah, I think we all can give each other permission and give ourselves permission to be different, in this case, different men in different contexts. Um, yeah. So, so let, let's, let's, let's put this back on, on to men um, intentionally. And mm -hmm. has the notion of what it means to be a man changed over time? Yes. I mean, yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a question behind your question. And so uh, in preparing for this conversation, I actually wanted to flesh out my own ideas and explore it. And I, I wrote a piece uh, uh, on, um, on medium called welcome home action hero. You know, people can look it up if they want. Uh, I, you know, I was raised on sort of two sources of dignity and I know this is common in America, whether we are comfortable talking about it or not. And those two main sources, if you're a straight guy, I think they, what's called like a cisgender heterosexual guy right now. Um, those two sources of dignity have been warrior and you can be like a noble warrior, right? Protect the weak, protect the innocent. And you could be a kind of brutal, destructive kind of warrior character. You know, in that essay, I, I call out um, a, a, a character from a play, Stanley Kowalski in The Streetcar Named Desire, right? He's a, a brutal man. Both happen in our country, but there's two sources of dignity, that, that warrior. And I think the other source of dignity is really the, the provider, um, there is a like a hardwired cultural circuit, the connecting how much we earn with how much dignity and frankly, how how worthy of love men feel. The less you earn 
and this is an a reinforced social norm, I think, the less you earn, uh, often the less you feel worthy of respect, community, connection, you know, all of these really, I think, very foundational human needs. And so I think it's, I think it's a good time. I think right now, you know, your question about how it's evolving, I think, I think now is a time where all of us should be reconsidering that. And I think we need to make a lot more room, not just for a lot more forms of masculinity, but for a lot more sources of dignity, hmm. things we celebrate, right? Not just being a warrior or being a provider. I think in the worst case, actually, providership just turns into a fetish for conspicuous consumption. And that ends feeling very hollow, right? Um, I, I think, you know, what about, you know, th there should be room for men. You know, if I go to Florida and I'm taking care of my mom who has cancer for a few months, that should be something we celebrate, you know, in popular, I'm, I'm being a caregiver and I'm being a good man, um, you know, and we could come up with dozens of others. Right. So, so, so I hope we're evolving in that direction. Right. So is it change, is masculinity and, and what's, Hmm. Acceptable to what brings dignity in, in roles for a man. Yeah. Is it changing so much that you even see that it's changed over your lifetime? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so in, in that essay, I, I call out, uh, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, there's Sylvester Stallone, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Bruce Lee, you know, when I was an impressionable kid around my, around hitting puberty, right. I wanted to be like these guys. Right. And if you, if you look at popular media, popular culture, all these things the the role models have been i mean you try to watch those movies now i don't know about you but for me like they're pretty hard to watch they're pretty they're pretty one-dimensional they're they really register as comedies now i think <laughs> um but a lot of those ideals i took seriously at that time and i know i'm not alone i mean those are very very popular sort of cultural norms and now when you look at men um you know, like I sometimes think of Chris Evans and Captain America and the Avengers and stuff like that. And uh, he is way less of a showboat, right? There's a, there's a softer, gentler masculinity. He's very like appropriate with female characters and stuff like that. You, you, you hardly ever see uh, in, in romantic comedies, men make first moves anymore. Hmm. So I think, I think like you, you see this, there's a rolling back of of male aggression for better or worse i mean you know i for me i this is i'm speaking for myself personally i think i think we do need i think boys especially feel it when they're hitting that age we need constructive ways for them to deal with those feelings of aggression you know boxing and martial arts is a wonderful way to keep it in a constraint where nobody you know there's there's no real emotional or psychological damage that come, can come out of it necessarily so I, I, I think that we're I'm kind of rambling here a little, but I, I, I really think we're in a process of reevaluating and I hope we don't come up with one new normal. If it's 10 years from now and there's one new normal and everyone's trying to get there, square peg in a round hole, I think that'll be bad for us. I'd love to see 20 new normals. Cool, you know, cool. If I had a son, that's, that's what I would, I would try to give to him. Nice. I, I, I like that. And it really... Um one struggle for men that, that I see in, in, in who I meet and who through the, through podcasting and as, as clients 
guys that seem to want to hold on to a really strict definition of masculinity, if you call it, you know, the man box or even toxic masculinity is another term thrown around, but the guys that really want to like kind of be in the past and static seem to have the, be having the most trouble with kind of life today. So I love the idea that I love the idea that there's, Oh wait, there, there should be 20 man boxes that you could potentially choose from. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, my hope for future, we, we seem to be in a moment, of reckoning around race and gender and sexuality and these things. Um, And I think the reckoning is good and healthy and uncomfortable. You know, when a conversation gets uncomfortable, you know, you're getting to something that, that probably could use some fresh air, right? Some open conversation. So I think all that's great. I worry that what will happen, and this is being amplified by social media and stuff is everything turns into smaller and smaller echo chambers. And it's so easy for us, if there are 20 kinds of masculinity, there could be 20 different ways of living where you never touch the other 19. You never come into contact with them. And so that's kind of one of the things I worry about in, in all these categories. I I think we, we need new sort of uh, constraints, new invitations, new possibilities for community building. This is hard in the middle of a pandemic. Mm to really spend social time with people who are really different. Um, and I think, I think that's kind of a moral imperative right now because the, the trajectory is fragmenting and people are not giving each other the, that charitable benefit of the doubt saying, Hey, you're not understanding me, but that's okay. Let me, let me help you to understand me. Um, so I, I hope that coming out of this pandemic, there'll be more and more opportunities for people to connect with people who are very different, you know, gay guys, straight guys from the North, from the South, you know, um, you know, every possible gender designation. Like I just, I, there needs to be a lot less animosity and a lot more understanding. My favorite way to do all that stuff is break bread. You know, I like organizing dinners usually for 40 people and we have a speaker and a chef and everything. Well, and, yeah, and bringing people together in that context makes them feel safe. Let, let's jump to that because I, yeah, you have a good people dinners, right? Yeah. So, so tell me, you know, how did that come about? And and I, you know, I I I know COVID has put a stop to it, or I, I assume it's still a stop. Yeah. But how uh, how 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 did it start, and how was it going before everything changed? <laughs> you know, uh, I I think of the community as a little bit. It's like we're in hibernation. So I'm doing more podcasts like this. I am, and I'm grateful to be invited on and, and have these kinds of conversations. I'm, I'm interviewing people from all over the world, which is a nice perk of being virtual. And I'm doing all this stuff to keep that, that conversation, that community going. Um, but as of March, I mean, we had done maybe 250 events since 2012, early 2012. Dinners, overnights, retreats, uh, corporations would hire me to bring people together to have these, these deep and meaningful discussions. Um, you know, I thought of them as a refuge from always getting shit done, right? I, I, I think that we have been a culture drowning in linear thinking and problem solving. Now that, and that, that goes for personal and professional lives. You know, I'm lonely. I want to get a date. I'm going to be disciplined and aggressive point, click, swipe, swipe, go, go, go eight dates on Friday, 20 dates on Saturday, 30 minutes each cycle through, get to the thing. And we do the same thing with raising money, getting a job, hiring people, all that stuff. And so what we end up doing is we get really locked into a more kind of ROI transactional mindset that I have experienced myself, and I know I'm not alone here, 
as exhausting and alienating. And so I think that's a little bit of a, a cultural imbalance that we cultivated. And so the, the dinners were an attempt to bring people together and explicitly say, hey, whatever your agenda is, whatever you're, you're going after right now, good for you. Go after stuff. That's, you know, that's the American uh, spirit. You, you, you ask for what you want and you go after it. But what we're going to do tonight at this dinner or for this weekend at this retreat or even a week-long event is we're going to really do our best when we think of that one thing we're pursuing uh, most ardently, we're going to do our best to put it down and pick it up on the other side. And of course, that's magical. You know, when you put, when you put down, I'm horny and lonely, of course, you end up meeting somebody because you're having an honest conversation with them. You're not always calculating, how am I going to get in the other person's pants or whatever, right? If you, if you've got a conundrum with your business and you put that down and you have a conversation about something oblique way over here, you know, what, what time of year do magnolia trees uh, blossom? Oh, that's cool. Uh, how, oh, you know, angiosperms, when did they, you know, evolve? Blah, blah, blah. You know, so you start talking about something like that. Before you know it, you've built trust and rapport. And, and that's the thing we often forget. And I hope also coming out of this pandemic, we will remember there's, there's, a, there's some value in patience. There's value in build trust and rapport before you attempt to do whatever it is. Um, yeah, and it could be noble, right? I mean, I had one person uh, come as a speaker, and she had a fantastic charity, and I didn't really prepare her right, and she just kind of hard-pitched her charity all night. I believe in her charity. I love her charity. She's doing good stuff, and I, it really drew into high relief. We need these contexts where we put it down, and so I made sure that that kind of thing just didn't happen in the future. Um, I hope we'll pick it up again, you know, on the tail side of this pandemic. I love bringing people together like this. Cool. So what makes for a meaningful conversation? How do you know when you're, you're, you're having one, you've set one up, you can, you're, you're in it yourself or you see other people, like what, what are the signs? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I'd probably say one of the most important things is psychological safety. And what that basically means is if you and I are in a conversation, you feel uh, safe that no matter what you say, if you are sincere, if you're in integrity, if you're vulnerable, I will not condemn you. I will not judge you. There will not be some punitive or negative repercussions for you after the fact that, in fact, I will meet you with compassion and curiosity. And so we have a bunch of rituals at our dinners that we do. Just They're not rituals. They're just like, this is the, the way we do things. And they're all little nudges, essentially, in the direction of keeping things discreet, off the record, creating that psychological safety, celebrating that vulnerability, modeling that vulnerability in front of the room of people who are eating so that they, they then get that implicit message. When I sit down with these people, most of whom I don't know, and we're sharing stories over dinner, it's okay to open up, uh, you know? And uh, so that's, I mean, that's one aspect of it. I wrote a whole piece on this because when I start getting asked a question about the community consistently, I always write a piece and usually I post them on Medium. And so this one was just the good people founding principles, uh, which anyone can see. Um, and there are eight founding principles. And if you want, I could pull them up and go into them, but they're, they're really all about, creating connection, community, building trust and rapport, psychological safety, being curious, getting outside your comfort zone, uh, 
you know, which is also incidentally conducive to great social chemistry. It's conducive to learning. It's conducive to creativity. You know, when you create a context like that, things really can blossom. Hmm. Uh, but you have you have to you have to have trust. You have to have people who are going to respect that. Is is all this this authenticity, the vulnerability, the trust, the safety? Is this all part of things that you learned was was part of being a man? Is this something trainings that you kind of grew up with? Uh, yes and no. Um, yeah, I grew up, you know, I grew up really on a hippie commune. Um, I'm, uh, you know, my dad was a Jewish kid from Brooklyn. My mom was a, a white Christian woman from Ohio. Um, but they gave me an Indian name, you know, and my brother and sister also have weird names, you know, from different cultures. And, and so it's confusing for people when they meet us, they, they think we're of a particular ethnicity and we're not. Um, and, and so I learned some of these things when I was a kid, we, we did have banquets. Um, you know, I was exposed to a wide range of philosophers and religious teachers, you know, probably if there was a category of teaching that, that gave me the most gifts and for which I'm the most grateful, it would be teachings within Buddhism. If I had, if I had finished my PhD, I, it would have been in Buddhist studies and, uh, not not as a sort of uh, proselytizer or participant or a monastic, but as an academic teacher of it. And um, and so some of it was there. And then a lot of it, honestly, was humiliating myself, failing, hurling myself into shit I didn't know, have a clue how to do. I don't know where I got that from, if it was my dad or, you know, I, I think I have it more than my brother and sister you know, just, just, I have no idea how to be a fig farmer. Let's, let's, let's invest, uh, if we've got a hundred grand, let's put all of it into fig trees and figure it out. So I have just, I've done stuff like that. And, and I've always loved great conversations. So I've always just naturally gravitated into different creative communities that valued that. Right. So like, um, Camp Grounded is a great example. It's it's gone now. The the founder passed away. Or actually, I, I apologize. It has rebooted. That was a great place to have meaningful conversations. That was a place of, of vulnerability. It was a part of digital detox. You had no watches, no phones, no clocks anywhere. Um, it was a total like 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 detox from all of essentially the modern world on a campground, and it was super fun. Uh, Renaissance Weekend is another community like that. If you want to look it up, uh, when I get to Renaissance Weekend, I get so intellectually overstimulated. I always make amazing new friends, people from all walks of life. Uh, it's a real celebration of the value of civil discourse in the United States. Um, you know, and there's a bunch of others. I've, I've probably dropped into 15 or 20 communities and t- taken notes and learned about how I wanted to build community. Hmm. Um, and I think now, you know, we're pretty, we're pretty good at it. So is, was growing up in your, your parents, you know, hippie community of different in, intakes and, and your willingness and curiosity to, to throw yourselves the new things. Is, is this how you realize that the, uh, being a chameleon is, is serves you and, and might actually be fun? Yeah. I, you know, that's, that's a really good point. Uh, I kind of got goosebumps right there. <laughs> I, when I was pretty young, I started traveling around the world a lot, and I realized I had a facility for languages. I could pick up languages real quick. So I studied uh, Ch- uh, Mandarin Chinese. I studied French, German, uh, Spanish, Tibetan, 
and I really enjoyed getting away from anyone like me and trying everything the locals were doing if they would allow me to trying all the local food uh, building my vocabulary through conversation um, and and it was it was a thrill it was it enlarged my life it's something I would hope for anyone to have a taste of you know I think there's new technology where basically with this thing next to you you can speak all languages now which is just like nuts to me amazing and so you know on a hopeful front I you know that experience I had say between age 15 and 25 uh, that could be available to anyone now you know you can go out in the world if you're if you just get outside your comfort zone eat what they're eating, you know, impose. Oh, that's another good one. So, and, and this is very gendered, unfortunately. Uh, we American men are, we, we bumble our way into shit all over the world, <laughs> right? Graham Greene wrote about that in The Quiet American, right? It's not always good. We can cause a lot of damage. But we, we, we are kind of oblivious about imposing on people. And when I look back again with 2020 hindsight, I'm so glad I did. I always gave everything I could. If they needed my manual labor to help with something, I would do it. Um, and uh, there's very few cultures or people who, who do that. And I think we should more, right? The ideal is not to keep that ledger, but is to give without any expectation of return. And then when you're traveling and you're vulnerable and you're by yourself, ask, just ask, where can I sleep? You know, where should I go to eat? What's good around here? Is there music? Right. What's this ritual going on? Oh, I have to take off my shoes. Oh, keep my head down. Don't put the book on the floor. You got to keep it up on the thing. Okay. I get it. Right. We should all be doing that in, in, in an ideal world, I think. So, and again, this sounds like your own experience has taught you the importance of being present with the moment, being integrity with yeah. that moment and being free flowing and not, not so tied to your identity that you come in as the know-it-all American and telling people how they should be doing things. <laughs> Steamroll everybody. Yeah. You'll miss all the magic if you do that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the whole world will just look like an unruly child that, that is disobeying you. Hmm. Uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a double-edged sword. You know, you really do need to uh, be really present. You know, there's a, there's a concept, uh, in uh, sort of Chinese philosophical Taoism, you know, Wu Wei. And it's, it has to do with the way these much celebrated sieges behave. And they behave in a way that we as Americans might think of as profoundly lazy and evasive. We would, we would, I think if, I think this cultural ideal in Chinese culture would be very uh, not welcome in America. We would think they were freeloaders and not do, and refusing to do anything. But the 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 virtue of Wu Wei is spontaneously present and acting in accordance with the the Tao. Whatever's happening, someone's being murdered. Act in accordance with the Tao. You know, there's a delicious feast. Just flow with that. Um, you know, there's an opportunity to avoid work. You don't feel like working? Fine, no big deal. Um, it's a time to be super industrious because it's what's appropriate to that moment. Do that. 
So, you know, it's, it's, it's beyond just surrender to the moment. It's actually sort of an, an, uh, a selfless, spontaneous action. Um, so it's, it's a, it can be a little bit of a extreme philosophy. I don't think I'd want to live entirely that way. I like having some grounding, some connections. Uh, if, but, if, if, if there was a, a place where everybody lived like that, yeah. I mean, like would, would everything would get done or nothing get done? Yeah. Would everyone, <laughs> would industry hit everybody or not? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You know, there, there are, uh, there, there are scholars out there of Taoism uh, who would probably be able to clarify that for us a whole lot. You know, they'd probably correct me right here a little <laughs> bit. I'm a little rusty. Um, yeah. But I, I, I like, I like being able to go with the flow. I like, you know, the French have an idea too. It's called the flaneur, right? It, it, the quintessential phrase is uh, not all who wander are lost. Mm. And the flaneur is somebody who conscientiously abandons an objective. So it would be the equivalent of me walking out the front gate of my yard here with no idea if I'm going to go left or right, how far I'll walk, you know, what I might do along the way. Um, I, f I think most of us actually experience that as relief when we when we're, we temporarily put the agenda down and we're just like, oh, what's that over there? Oh, there's blackberries. Let's pick some of those. Oh, these ones are sour. Ooh, you know. That oh, there's a brewery. That, you know? that sounds very not childish in a bad way, but childlike. That naivety, yeah. just oh, go go where the wind takes me and and discover the day and yeah. 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 And we don't have to do it all the time, but it, it's nice. I think again, you know, uh, your show is a little bit about. You know what does it mean to be a man? I think I think men can fall into rigid rigidity, right? That's, that's there's a lot of cultural baggage we inherit around rigidity, and uh, it is so unburdening to be silly and foolish, right? I sometimes say like the fool learns fastest. The more foolish you are willing to appear in front of others, um, the the more likely you're going to have insights. And you're going you're gonna to be able to kind of operate in more savvy ways. Uh, I don't think we value that enough. It, it, there's yeah. there, there's a, an obsession also, and this is across the board for men and women, I think, with perfectionism. And, you know, if you have a lot of shame and perfectionism in your life, you are absolutely guaranteed stifling yourself creative, creatively. Yeah. Um, but if you are foolish and sloppy, so sometimes, not always, right? If you're designing a rocket ship that's got to go to Mars, don't be foolish and sloppy. But you know what? If you're finger painting with your kid, yeah. yeah. You know, I do think we're moving in a good direction. I see more and more dads, more and more involved with kids. It's less and less stigmatized to express emotion. Um, you know, the foolishness and silliness are allowed. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that part we're we're unburdening ourselves from that that kind of rigid dignity. Is is that is some of the longing or appreciation for rigidity, fi finding comfort in rigidity, is that do you think that's a male thing or is that true with any role or identity? Uh it's a good question. Uh yes. <laughs> Both. Yeah, I no. Well, I don't know. I it, all all fixed roles and identities. Saying, you know, uh, it's good to always illustrate through something absurd. I'm a vanilla ice cream eater, right? And and then you and I are hanging out one day, and I get the I get the maple pecan, 
and you look at me like, who the, who the hell are you? <laughs> what are you doing? You're a vanilla ice cream man, right? So, but we do that to each other constantly. That those rigid, you know, I, it basically it boils down to, can I feel safe around you by accurately predicting your behaviors most of the time? Because if you start acting spontaneously and like some Wu Wei crazy man, maybe you'll do shit you've never done before. And then I feel unsafe. And, and I think that is, um, I think that is a, an issue for a lot of people across cultures, men and women, that, that they want some fixed, the fixed, the fixedness, the concretizing of identity. People, I think, mistakenly believe is a form of enduring safety. And, you know, and now I'm sounding like a Buddhist, but from the Buddhist perspective, the beginning of pain and ignorance is the assertion that I am. And after I am, you can add any adjective you want. It's still a path to hurt. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it's this gentle redirecting of our energy towards what is, what feels right here, you know? And sometimes that means setting a long-term objective and de being determined, gentle, and consistent in pursuing it. Hmm. Uh, it doesn't preclude that. But it also doesn't mean that you're going to be, you know, shitting diamonds every morning, which, you know, I saw that with my father. I, saw, I see that with men in their 70s now. They're at the end of, of a life where they have done everything they were supposed to. Providership, the house is perfect, the lawn's perfect, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're pretty lonely and they're wondering why, why I did what I was supposed to. I adhered to the male norm. Why does this suck? I'm, I'm lonely. Yeah. And, you know, when I've had those candid conversations with my dad's past now, but with men that age, you know, there's regret and I, which is, I think healthy and a realization that, you know, I should have let friends come over and drink the last beer and not gotten bent out of shape about mm -hmm. it. I should have, I should have let the house be a little more messy yeah. I should have made more spontaneous decisions. I, I, maybe I didn't need to save so much money. We could have done some weird adventure more often instead of waiting till my retirement. T time and time again, in my own experience and talking with other men and just other humans, yeah, a life of doing what you're supposed to is, is a life empty, right? It's unfulfilled. Yeah. You haven't given yourself that curiosity to, to bumble into things, right? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and I've experienced too, I... I long history of, of dealing with depression and suicidal thoughts yeah. and suicide attempts. And I thought I was depression. I thought I was suicide. Uh, right. Oh, gosh, so, and, man, yeah. and there was even comfort in that rigidity, right. That yeah. even there's, there's comfort in being uncomfortable if that's what you're used to. And it was that's scary right. for me we to seek like the familiar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was like, who, yeah. if, if I'm really never suicidal again, who the hell would I be like that terrified me. Right. So it's identity crisis. Yeah, yeah. right. And it's what we're talking about, you know, but you know, when, when I talk about things on stage, there's, there's a secret happiness I share and it's like skipping. And I, I, skipped, <laughs> my, I skipped my mailbox and I'm like, ah, I, right can't, I can't help but laugh and giggle and be an idiot. So it goes back to, you know, being willing I love to that. like that. That'll break down the man box. You're willing to be, you know, you can't skip and pretend to be John Wayne. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You would get, a, I think you'd get along with my mom. My mom does that uh, laughing yoga thing, you oh, know, where yeah. like, 
you know, cause it works in both directions. Right. And it's in your body. It's kinesthetic, right? It, if you, if you can, if you can bring up laughter, you actually get the same hormonal relief and release. And so like there are people who practice laughing and then when you do that, laughter becomes much, it comes more easily all the time. You know, like your skipping thing is a great example. My mom would, my mom would love it. I'm going to tell my mom about that. Yeah. But good for you too, man. I mean, you know, that's, I think you just made a really, really valuable point. If we're used to an idea of ourselves that hurts, we can get just as attached to that as, as dignity or hope, Yeah, you know? Because yeah, the, the people around, even, again, even if you don't like it, how everyone reacts to you you're you're used to that people know you know people knew um to look out for me you know oh am i getting moody is he getting quiet Uh oh what we better be prepared for a depression phase for andy you know because usually when someone by the time someone else has noticed i'm in deep and i'm not coming up until i hit rock bottom and i'm sick of feeling this way there there really was nothing someone else could do that i was that i'm aware even now right yeah that's interesting thank you yeah and um and going back to perfectionism because i was I was, I have to say, still am, and am a perfectionist, but I can't remember who said this. It, it, I didn't create this, but perfectionism it is not, is not, it, the goal is not perfection. A perfectionist yeah. only sees imperfection, right? A perfectionist uh, points out everything that's wrong. So that's all you see. You don't see, ah, this isn't quite my golden vision yet. We need to do, no, so, no wrong, wrong, stupid, nope, that didn't work. Like that's yeah. how most people that call themselves perfectionists react. And being a perfectionist is somehow this, you know, not really serving, expanding idea, but it's one that, especially in American society, it's allowable. Oh, it's yeah. like, oh, good. He's a perfectionist. He's going, you know, like, but He's it's going to be hard on everyone, but yeah. we're going to get to the promised land. Yes. You're right. Yeah. So it, yeah. again, it's this weird. T- so if, yeah. So if, if you find yourself being perfectionist, I, uh, I, I want you to skip while you're trying to be perfectionist. Maybe that'll <laughs> break that down. <laughs> You know, I I I, did, I have read a fair bit of like management philosophy stuff and business stuff and uh, you know, good to great, built to last, all these things, and then also business psychology and organizational design. And one really interesting thing that is so easy, or two that's so easy, so easy, and so unfortunately rare, is one: ask people what they're good at, help them operate in that zone of genius as much as you can. It's never going to be a hundred percent of the time, right? If you're really good at making whipped cream, sometimes you got to make pickles. I don't know. And then the, the, you know, the other thing is that when we're talking about that trust and rapport building and, and lifting each other up and that positive sum dynamic that really is possible when, when you have that emotional and psychological safety is actually, and it can feel really awkward and mechanistic, especially if you're a perfectionist, which is, I'm not going to allow myself to criticize you until I've complimented you five times. Mm. And that five to one ratio is, is pretty magical. It's, you know, it's a rough ratio, but it's pretty magical. If you go 10 to one, people stop taking you seriously. You just sound like you're, you're, you're just heaping on the gratuitous compliments. Five to one is pretty magic. And if you're, if you're doing like one to one, like, Hey, Andy, you totally screwed this up, but I like that shirt. Um, you know, if you do that, actually people don't want to be around you. Yeah. I bet. And yeah. resent you, yeah. you know? So, uh, yeah, so I, try, I, I try to remember that. Yeah. And that's like, 
school and career reviews and you know none of that focus on that it, we all we what are they bad at we got to focus on what they're bad at and make that better like no like no let people run with what they're good at what they're good at yeah, yeah. i yeah. think that i think that's the, the the book is strength finder right yes that's the strength finder philosophy yep yep that i yeah. i read and took that test many times and i was very depressed and uh it gave me all these i things and i all the things it said were strengths like i thought that was a weakness i didn't know that was a that's good like it was really Did you believe I, it though did you believe it? Boy, in, in the moment, it just cracked me open to possibly. But now I really believe and, and own all those yeah. things it told me. I, I, yeah, oh, that's great. That, yeah. That book helped me a lot. I totally yeah. recommend those tests. Yeah. Cool. Now, you write a lot. You share a lot of articles with me. I want, yeah. I want to kind of jump to a few. Um, one, is, one thing you shared was uh, something you wrote called What's Important to a Father? Yeah. So off the top of your head now, what's important to a father? Oh, I had a, uh, my daughter's 10 and I'm divorced and her mom, uh, took her to England very much against my will and, and managed to pull it off. Um, so that, that's, that's been the hardest thing in my whole life. Uh, and we had a, we had a conversation this morning. Um, you know, if I could be with her more and be more of a hands-on dad, uh, I would say a specific kind of resiliency. Um, there is a risk averse kind of resiliency and there's a risk fetish kind of resiliency. There's the person who's always trying to hurt themselves and the person who's always trying to bubble wrap themselves. And I think in the middle, there is this person who's always trying new stuff. I wonder how good I could get at rock climbing. And really pushing to see and then falling down and getting back up. And I think of that as kind of a, I think of that as a meta skill, the ability to be totally humiliated, uh, to risk everything. And, uh, you know, I remember at one point I had my divorce and then uh, a difficult break up with my business partner of 10 years the second divorce and so two divorces in a row that was the most depressed I've ever been and I had maybe six figures of debt it was it was a very very dark moment um and you know I didn't have a lot of people to support me and I was having panic attacks and stuff and you know just trying to put one foot in front of the other if I hadn't had a really good psychologist at the time that I could go that I could turn to I I don't know how I would have made it through that time and running I would just run all the time I I had just done a marathon and some half marathons um yeah <laughs> but yeah resiliency that kind of resiliency that ability to pick yourself up to ask for help that's part of resiliency you know like what you were saying about yourself like don't take that Seneca stoicism too far you know, sometimes you can't, there's, there's no bootstraps, there's no bootstraps to pull up. Yeah. You're, you're going to need two shoulders under your arms if you're going to stand again. Yeah. yeah. So those are things I think about as a dad. Yeah. And there's a, a piece you wrote about your dad and mm. kind of, I think kind of at the end of it, you said uh, you had finally figured out how to let go of the largest obstacles that you had placed in your own way. Mm. So, 
can can you name what those obstacles were and are they do they still feel the same like was that accurate yeah. what, what you thought they were is it accurate now years later my I, so i think i wrote that seven or eight years ago it was after my father died he after he passed away um so i don't remember what they were but i think the uh i do think the principle is has proven true not just for me but for most people i've i've cared about and gotten to know well and and that principle is and this is very good news for uh, for us human beings most of the hindrances and obstacles most of the barriers to you manifesting your own potential are actually self-imposed uh it is also true and you have to have discernment the, the, the universe is going to impose limitations on you. You and I are never playing in the NBA. No, sorry, right? We're, we're just, it ain't going to happen. I, I won't speak for you, but I'm also probably not going to be, uh, you know, working on the first uh, colony on Mars. Uh, so those are externally imposed. But most of the, most of the, uh, the hindrances are the, are sort of in the way we talk to ourselves. I, I have a friend, I've been on his podcast too, Grant Parr, who's a sports psychologist and also a big fan of meditation. And he and I have talked a lot about fear. I talked about fear on his podcast with him. And he, uh, he's also been through a lot of uh, suffering, frankly, uh, physical pain. And he talks about it in, in his book. So I'm not betraying a confidence here. He had he was a quarterback, a football quarterback, and and now he's a coach and a sports psychologist. Um, and so he he also talks about uh, the importance of the ways we speak to ourselves. Uh, and and he and I also are fans of meditation as a way to calm things down enough to actually hear those voices, and to gently, not forcefully, it's not combat change that inner dialogue shift it slowly to where you are operating more at that edge of what you're capable of without you know chopping yourself off at the knees without handicapping yourself in whatever you're trying to do uh and you know speaking as a parent as a parent that's something i would also hope for my for my daughter is that she learns how to do that how that she becomes aware of how she speaks to herself and that she gently with kindness towards yourself shifts those internal dialogues in the direction of being able to explore the limits of her capabilities. Yeah. Whenever someone asks me, you know, what, what what's coaching? What does it even mean? And I'm like, I, I help people get out of their own way. And cause you know, yeah. people might be shocked, but like the good news is that, yeah, you're the one in your way and it's good news <laughs> because the only person we can change is ourselves. If, yeah, if, if, right. you're, if you're really the victim of all these people conspiring against you, you're just screwed. But yeah. when it's you, you can do something. So, so I think that. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you will play in the NBA. Shit, I don't know. Yeah, don't hold <laughs> me down. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't know how tall you are. I don't know how much you can jump. You might have a great, great outside shot. Who knows? I'm just going to make the NBA stand for something else that I can do. How about that? <laughs> right on. Cool. And uh, and again with the inner dialogue that the. the, the I found that that the loud, um, the voice that puts me down, the judgmental voice, is it's that negative ego. And when I quiet that, I'm a, I've been meditating for, wow, 15 years maybe. Anyway, nice. Um, again, resisted it, thought it was horrible, not possible. Finally did it. It worked. So, you know, yeah. if this is your first it's time like of brushing your it, teeth, brush your mind. Yep. Yeah, just let it flow, clean it out. 
but when you quiet that part of the mind, there is this softer voice that mm. that's subtle, and that is what you know uh, your intuition, your higher self, your angels, whatever term you want to use yeah. to it. But there is, we all have this inner wisdom that's trying to help us. But the, but the louder, more obvious voice is just that. Ah, you suck. You can't do anything. It's all that that echo chamber. But uh, yeah. we all have that too, and you know we're we're capable of put putting that aside. You you can have that guy rest for a bit. Yeah, take a break, buddy. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. I had one meditation teacher who talked about it as, um, and actually, I think he might have even gotten it from Suzuki Roshi, who, you know, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Uh, he talked about uh, it, you, you're, you can always invite your demons, keep the front and back door open, but be a shitty host, right? <laughs> yeah. Invite them for tea, but be a shitty host. Because, you know, the problem is like that that voice, that, that self flagellating voice is not going to go away if you push it away right. that actually ends up feeding it but yeah. if you're like i'm fine man you can be here as much as you want i'm going to focus my attention over here though okay yeah. chill in the living room for the next 20 days if you need to yep yeah a big part that helped me is realizing i could choose to focus my thoughts and attention on something else yep Right? That's the that's yeah. freedom, yeah. Yeah, notice the rumination, and instead of thinking, oh, no, I'm stuck here, this is horrible, it's horrible, like, oh, wait, I can just, like, step aside and <laughs> get out of my yeah. way, right? And, and, it, and it works. So It works for a lot of people. It doesn't work for everybody. No one thing, in my experience, works 100% of the time for every person. But I, I always celebrate one of my friends who's having a hard time, starts experimenting and trying stuff. And if they do it enough, they're going to find stuff that works for them. Right. Yeah, that's the key. That's, that's uh, one of the books I've written is called Still Here, um, How to Succeed at Life After Failing at Suicide. And it's everything I wish mm-hmm. I knew at like 17 years old. And it's oh, like, keep yeah. trying. You know, yeah. like, and like, you know, doctors gave me a diagnosis. Here's a pill. And like, pill didn't work. And that would like make me more hopeless and helpless. I'd be like, oh, wait, there, you know, there's an infinite world of things to try from, from yeah. pharmaceuticals to meditation to exercise to energy work to coaching yeah. to therapy. Like, all right. And just because you haven't found it yet doesn't mean you're, you're helpless. Yeah, that's right. I, yeah, that's Which, beautifully we, said. Yeah, and it goes back to resiliency, right? Yeah. Nothing new. And, and being a chameleon. We're, all, we're full circle. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, being a kind and gentle chameleon. You know, <laughs> there's, there's also, I mean, and, and that's where people get a little bit of trouble. I should really clearly, like, discriminate here. There are people who are conscientiously deceptive. And that is different, right? That is not spontaneously present. Right. kind of with this joyful curiosity that is uh that is really just pe- treating people as a means to an end and kind of that psychopathic or sociopathic gordon gecko greed is good attitude yeah. that's very different right well yeah that's um, no opposite of authenticity not being vulnerable being manipulative yeah, yeah just self-focused out for your own good rolling over people yeah yeah all right so we're we're against that that yes. is not that is not the advice of this to, program. <laughs> I wanted to keep the, I wanted to clarify what the, yep. the difference there. Good, good, yeah. good to make it up. So, uh, yeah, is there is there one thing top of mind that you wish more men knew? Uh, kindness doesn't make you weak. I, I wish it wasn't even necessary to say that yeah. anymore, but I I do think it is. I think I think uh, you know a lot of us still need to hear it uh, even if it's only a reminder that we actually derive a lot of strength from 
reciprocal respect and support, and that comes through kindness. Um, there's no dignity in cruelty, uh, but that does get kind of in a confused way, kind of mixed up often in male identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think in in the past there may be short term wins or seen as wins for that behavior. That's right. Yeah. I think that's part of it. Well, but. actually, I'll, I'll be a little more cynical than you. Okay. <laughs> um, I do think, and I'm working on a book manuscript right now, that we've set up our societies, especially economically, to reward exploitative and ac- extractive behaviors. We we remunerate them. You know, we're not, we won't without getting into like whether or not uh, people who who win at the red and tooth and claw capitalism are more or less happy. We definitely compensate well people who are ruthless and um i have definitely had some sense of despair watching people rocket to success when they were callous and cruel and were just doing whatever they could get away with without going to prison and i think we need to have a hard look in the mirror as a culture and think and and this is eminently imaginable and doable what would incentive architectures nudges and, and and rewards and penalties everywhere look like if our most celebrated human beings were compassionate altruistic truly humble when it, you know imagine we celebrated you know this this guy got to two or three million bucks and he was like i got enough but we don't read about those guys. They're out there. Yeah. We read about the guys who are like pathologically deranged and a billion dollars isn't enough. You know, I think we should look upon people like Jeff Bezos or Mark Ellison as having severe mental illness around hoarding. And we can set up incentives that would elevate to leadership positions, to culturally celebrated positions, men, in this, you know, for our show's purposes, men who, uh, who, who gain a feeling of self-worth and dignity from elevating everyone around them, from, from raising the floor on need and making, there's no excuse for poverty to even exist, certainly not in this country anymore. And, and those are, uh, I'd love to see incentives experimented with that elevated men like that. It's happened in the past. And it could happen again. It has not been the case in our lifetimes. We've gone more and more in the direction of greed is good. Yeah. No, it'd be great for that to be the norm. And, and again, it's the notion of, you know, real men feel came out of like, what if we celebrated men? We called that, oh, that's the real man. That's willing to sit over there crying. That's the bravest guy I've seen today. And that's the kind of the notion behind yeah. um, my creation of the show. And, and uh, since I've kind of fallen into that, it really, you know, it's all about, authenticity meaning real too yeah. it's not not the old box version of real man kind of a thing but um yeah R- Ramon, your your love and skill of civil discourse and meaningful conversations is is obvious and enjoyable what's the best way for people to track you down for more information to connect with you um you could just go to my my name.com ramanfrey.com and i try to drive everything there so we have a patreon page to support the business while it's in hibernation i'd be grateful for any but he wants to support us that way um you can go to goodpeopledinners.com to learn more about the events we were doing before uh covid 
Um, and you can find me on Medium. Um, I'm posting more and more interviews, more and more articles. Uh, I'm really having a, a wonderful time realizing that there are fascinating and diverse people all over the world that I can very easily interview now. Mm. Whereas before I was doing all these events in person. So I had to either bring them here or time it for when they were visiting or cool. things like that. So any of those places is great. Great. So now I've discovered you can have a snack and go on Zoom and <laughs> it's all good. It's like a little bit like teleportation, yeah. you yeah. know, yeah. I, I'm on that new clubhouse app too, which is a wonderful place for really interesting conversations. And it's like, you could just bounce in and out of room. It's like teleporting between rooms at a conference or something like that. And then you're sitting in the audience and you're like, Oh, oh this is pretty interesting. Oh, I have a, I have a contribution or a question. And then you just teleport onto the stage and you do your bit and you can sit back down or leave the room. So, you know, I, we're inventing some really interesting ways of dialoguing. I'm excited. My, my partner, my girlfriend is involved in Virtual Burning Man, which is next week. So she's part of the whole crew that created, it's a multiverse, many different universes. So it's just like this infinite playground all online. And hers is called the Sparkleverse. And it was created by the, the Co-Reality Collective. Really playful, fun, you know, in the spirit of Burning Man, all kinds of cool, weird stuff. I'm, I'm sure they're going to have all kinds of secret rooms and stuff like that. Awesome. Awesome. But we'll have, uh, uh, again, thank you for your time. Thank you for everyone for listening. We'll have uh, links to all the websites, the books, the programs mentioned. I'll try to capture it all in the show notes thank at you. realmenfeel.org. Um, if any of this is, is hit you, if you're not feeling comfortable, if you want to get out of your own way, you know, uh, glad to have a conversation, visit theandygrant.com slash talk, and we shall talk. Imagine that. And uh, until next time, be good to yourself. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Contact us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Join the private Real Men Feel Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash realmenfeel. Learn more about author, coach, and healer Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would help us greatly if you gave a review wherever you are listening right now. It takes less than a minute and helps other people discover Real Men Feel.